Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A. FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. Now, not to be a complete nerd or anything about this, but if a franchise wants to survive decades, it tends to have to play fast and loose with its own rules. This is fine for the vast majority of them though, but when one is as interwoven and as richly connected as Star Trek, you can't really get away with that. Tiny plot-convenient alterations in one part of the franchise can have huge ramifications in another, so if you are going to change something, you sort of have to hope nobody points it out. Especially not people on YouTube. Oh well, guess what this video's about. My name is Adam Cleary and these are 10 changes Star Trek hoped you wouldn't notice. Number 10, Captain Kirk's fate. Now look, minor continuity issues are always going to be a thing and we're not really going to focus on them, but the death of a main character should probably feel like a big deal. Star Trek Generations was written after the next generation came to a close. That means that the episode Relics, which featured Scotty guest starring in the show, had been and gone. That episode featured his certainty that Jim Kirk himself had come to rescue him. But barely three years later, from the writer's point of view anyway, Scotty was standing on the Enterprise B, Deck 15, observing the hull breach from which Kirk had been blown into the Nexus. There have been attempts in the air since to explain this away, such as stating that the mad old coot just had a bit of memory loss, but the truth is the writers just hoped the audience wouldn't notice. Nice try though guys, but it's literally our job. Number 9. Women can't be captains. Yeah, maybe a bit rich this one, as our entire presenting staff is currently made up of men. Is any women watching this video thinking, hey, I'd be really good at that, then I am begging you please email us. But the final episode of the original series sets a terrible, terrible precedent for the role of women in Starfleet. It's only the last episode because the thing got cancelled afterwards, which is just as well, because it ends with Kirk and Spock saying they feel sympathy for Janice Lester on account of her gender, as women can't be starship captains, for some reason. It's a nonsense really when you think about what Star Trek had already done for both gender and racial equality on television in the 60s, but this was a line that was just apparently fine to have as a rule on the show. In the 23rd century where mankind has finally put behind it all of its long-standing prejudices over race, colour and creed and now works together as one harmonious civilization to explore the stars and expand their own scientific and personal knowledge, you just, oh, you just still can't have those bloody emotional women in charge, can you? Not like good old Captain Kirk here who solved two-thirds of all problems the Enterprise ever faced with either his fists or his cock. Anyway, 1986, they quietly brushed this one under the carpet where Star Trek IV The Voyage Home opens with a female captain of the USS Saratoga, played by Marge Sinclair. Number 8, The Warp Scale. 
You know, the Voyager episode where Tom Paris breaks the warp 10 barrier, turns into this incredibly horny tadpole, and kidnaps Captain Janeway, hops on the webbed foot, and does the bad thing with her. Thing is, back in the late 80s, Gene Roddenberry himself said that Warp 10 would allow the Traveller to exist in every part of the universe simultaneously, rendering all forms of spaceflight obsolete. Didn't really make a lot of sense because the original series used a different scale when it came to measuring warp speed with the Enterprise regularly travelling well above Warp 10 from time to time. Further to this, in the next generation, the Enterprise D is able to travel at Warp 13 in Q's version of the future. And I just, unless I completely missed something in that episode, they don't exist in every part of the universe simultaneously. That would be a trip. The USS Excelsior was trialling transwarp drive, which we're sort of told is not the same thing as the Borg's transwarp drive, and was just a mad version of regular warp drive with a funny name. But those failed, and it got a regular warp drive, and the whole thing was just never mentioned again. The fact is, though, that all these versions of physics are completely made up, and ships simply travel at whatever speed happens to be convenient for the writer of that particular episode or movie. We're just, and I can't stress this enough, we're just not supposed to care. Number 7, Dr. Pavel Chekhov. <laughs> this is, oh, you weren't supposed to notice this one. Star Trek Generations was both the first cinematic outing for the Next Generation crew, and the final one for most of the original series actors. The script was always going to feature William Shatner returning as Captain Kirk, which would end up with Kirk and Picard coming face to face. The opening of the movie, however, was supposed to see him flanked on the bridge of the Enterprise B by both Spock and Dr. McCoy. It was the plan from the beginning. Leonard Nimoy was approached about returning, as was DeForest Kelly, but they both turned it down because, well, the former didn't want to do a cameo role, and the latter couldn't get insurance due to his declining health. Push came to shove, so in the end they swapped Spock for Scotty, and they swapped McCoy for Chekhov. The only problem being that nobody bothered to swap out any of the lines of dialogue, so if you actually sit there and pretend that the characters are supposed to be, the lines make a lot more sense. Case in point, when the refugees come aboard the ship, Chekhov is just suddenly a doctor, recruits some nurses, heads down to sickbay, and makes sure everybody's okay, despite no mention of him ever having medical training ever. That was just, that was supposed to be McCoy, and it makes a whole lot more sense when you know that. Number 6, The Size of the Galaxy Alright, so two things about the Star Trek series around the turn of the millennium. First of all, Deep Space Nine is supposed to be this frontier adventure right on the very bounds of Federation space, where the crew are pretty much left to their own devices with very little help ever able to come to them. Star Trek Voyager sees a ship thrown to the opposite end of the very galaxy itself, and it's going to take just under a hundred years for them to get home in a straight line. Wow, sounds like a pretty big galaxy you've got going on there, Star Trek. Except it didn't always used to be, because in Where No Man Has Gone Before in the original series, the Enterprise comes face to face with the Great Barrier that encircles the Milky Way galaxy, meaning they've travelled to the very edge of it. By Star Trek V The Final Frontier, the Enterprise A travelled in the opposite direction, heading directly to the centre of the galaxy this time. Remember they discover this whole planet with a benevolent being, and what does God want with a spaceship? Brilliant film. Either way, it all means that the Enterprise in the original Star Trek was capable of going to the very edge of the galaxy and to the very centre of it, as if it was absolutely no big deal. Captain Janeway, on the other hand, 75 years just to get home. Number 5, The Trill. Alright, I'll make this really simple, okay? This is Jadzia Dax, the definitive portrayal of the Trill race. This is Odan, the ambassador to the Trill race, and do you, do you see the problem? 
Now, a bit of a behind-the-scenes story for you here. Terry Farrell was actually tested in the original Trill makeup, but, well, it looked absolutely terrible. That and her skin was quite sensitive, so wearing heavy prosthetics all day was kind of a bad idea. So they just completely redesigned what Trill looked like. They got rid of the forehead ridges, they replaced them with the spots that went all the way down the body, and that was it. They never addressed it, they never told us why, they just hoped you wouldn't notice. But we did, because like I said at the start, big nerds. Number 4, Romy. Balance of Terror introduced the Romulans to Star Trek. It also, in another thing they hoped you wouldn't notice, introduced Mark Leonard as a Romulan before then later having him play Sarek a Vulcan, but <laughs> I digress. One of the key things you need to know about the Romulan Star Empire is it's made up of two core planets, Romulus and Romy. Now, while that might just sound like I've forgotten the word Remus and panicked some noises out of my mouth, that is actually what it was called in the original episode. And it just sat there, in canon, for decades and decades and decades until Star Trek Nemesis decided it should be called Remus so they could introduce the Remans. Which, as anybody who did GCSE history will tell you, was purely to bring it more in line with its real-life Earth mythology inspirations of the Roman Empire. Now, while I did hope we wouldn't notice the change, one theory that has been offered that I really like is that it's not actually Romy, it's Rom 2, with Roman numerals next to the name because Starfleet simply did not know what the other world was called at that point. Now, I do like that theory, but no, I will not be letting them get away with it. Sorry! Number 3. Just literally everything about shields. Now, every ship in Star Trek is fitted with shields to protect them from attack. Now, while there's obviously going to be a huge variety in the strength of these deflectors and how well they work against the things banging against them, they are always universally present. Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan even features an entire plot point about somehow conning the Reliant into lowering its shields because it's the only way the Enterprise could possibly get a hit on it. Star Trek Nemesis has a 30-minute-long running tally of how damaged all the shields on the Enterprise are, with the ship even rotating itself around to try and keep some of them facing the scimitar. Now that's great, that's all really great and really consistent and makes shields make sense for me, the viewer. But what's not great and not really consistent and doesn't make shields make sense for me, the viewer, is the entire last three seasons of Deep Space Nine. Granted, it's difficult when you've suddenly got fleets of hundreds and hundreds of ships, but the writers pretty much just decided to not have shields really be a problem. When things get shot at, they just blow up. Now, <laughs> don't get me wrong, I'm not a total square, I do at least appreciate that this gives us some very spectacular spaceship battles, but given that one week we're told that Dominion weapons are incredibly effective at cutting through Federation shields and all of these ships blow up, and then the next week the Defiant takes a pounding but still makes it back home in time for Wharf and Supper, I just... it's bad. It's bad writing. That being said, though... Wait for it. Oh, wait for it, wait for it. Boom! Yeah, that's pretty good, though. Number two, the Ferengi. In the first season of Star Trek The Next Generation, the writers had hoped to introduce a new, dastardly villain in the shape of the Ferengi. They would rise to become the rivals of the Klingon and Romulan empires, effectively serving as a new show's gift to the franchise. However... Absolutely none of that happened because the writing for the Ferengi was absolute dog In the last outpost, they're presented as this terrifying empire in the Alpha Quadrant who are supposed to both fear and respect in equal measure, but when that didn't work entirely, they thought, oh, let's just make them big, funny, floppy-eared dumbasses. Damon Bok tries to be a bit evil, I guess, in the battle, but after that, the entire species are just salesmen. They're purely concerned with acquiring wealth. 
Now obviously this works so much better for them as a species and they went on to become an incredibly important part of Star Trek lore and Armin Shimmerman even has the definitive alien role in the entire history of the franchise as one of them in my opinion but also it just didn't address that. They just changed one day because. Number 1 Voyager's Fuel Levels now, the entire premise of Star Trek Voyager was that the ship had been flung tens of thousands of light years away from the Federation, from Starfleet, or from anything remotely safe or homely. This, as you can imagine, for a relatively inexperienced crew made up of two warring factions, would be a f***ing nightmare. Now, one of the reasons why this would be terrible, and believe you me, there are many reasons why this would be terrible, is because they would have to refuel the ship entirely by themselves. No unlimited Federation resources, no Starfleet-branded intergalactic petrol station, just scrimping and scavenging every single natural element they need to make it go. But the thing is, once you've done the We Are Low On Power Captain storyline, you've pretty much done it forever. So after the second season of the show, it was pretty much just dropped entirely. Yes, in the fourth season, Demon does kind of touch on this as a jumping off point for what they wanted to do in the rest of the episode, but that was it. That was pretty much the last reference there was to an empty gas tank. Although, to be completely fair to them, once the Borg finally arrived in season three, the day you decide to do an oh dear, we're out of weapons, fuel and supplies episode is the day you're also doing a oh dear, we've all been assimilated episode. Still though, one last time, and for the record, we noticed. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.